0: All right, so what is a man? Let's start there. Uh, And the best answer starts in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 27 through 31. God created man in his own image. In the image God created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over everything that moves on the earth. And God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Any biblical doctrine of masculinity has to start right there in those verses. And for our purposes tonight, I only want to make a few basic observations uh, from this text. That's kind of been my entire ministry is just making plain observations of things I think should be commonplace, but we live in wild times. First, mankind, as in humanity, is a general category that includes two variations, male and female. Uh, That's it. Still, like not being able to see you guys. I'm going to make this work. It includes two variations male and female. Uh, that's all. There's, it's not a spectrum, it's a binary. He says male and female, he created them. And then down in verse 31, it was very good. So it's good to be your sex, it's good to be a man. And we'll come back to that in a second. A second observation is both varieties of mankind are equally made in the image of God. This is to say, in old theological language, That both male and female were created with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. In this sense, male and female are absolutely the same. Neither is greater or lesser. They are both equally mankind and have equal access to the Creator, as Galatians 3.28 teaches uh, through Jesus Christ. To deny that fact is a terrible sin. It is heresy. Um, By the way, Galatians uh, 3.28 is a favorite proof text of radical egalitarians or another word, feminist, here's exactly what it says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is uh, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there they, there you have it, they'll say. See, sexual distinctions don't matter in Christ. The gospel is a great equalizer. It sounds so pious, doesn't it? But it's hogwash. It's foolishness. The context of Galatians 3.28 isn't mysterious It's clearly talking about access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Listen to the preceding verses, 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. It's simply saying that God isn't a God of partiality. Anyone is welcome into into God's family through the blood of His Son. In this sense, your uh, background, station in life, Sex doesn't matter. It, however, isn't saying God will obliterate all distinctions. God is the maker of sex. It's His design. He's not going to eliminate it. But we do want to be careful to maintain that all people have equal access to God through Christ and that all mankind, male and female, equally bear God's image. To say otherwise, again, is heresy and it must be resisted. Thankfully, it's a rare thing to see anyone inside the church say otherwise. If anything is stressed about human sexuality and evangelicalism, it is the equality of the sexes. That point's been made ad nauseum over and over again. Where we are failing is in stressing that, one, equality isn't sameness, and two, God-given sexual distinctions are central to our entire existence. In other words, no one exists as a mere person. There are no generic humans. You are either male or female. Scripture absolutely rejects androgyny. Androgyny is the quality or state of being neither specifically feminine or masculine. It it treats sexuality as if it's interchangeable. So if you think back to uh, David Bowie, the um, musician, if you go back to his early albums, uh, well, actually, I think late 70s, early 80s, he had this time where he would try to kind of look like a woman, but not quite. And if you saw the Lord, what's a, The one with the lion, lion, the witch, and wardrobe. What's that woman that played the white witch? Tilda Swinton, right? She had this habit of playing characters where you're like, it's a chick, but it kind of looks like a dude, right? That's androgyny. So no one, we're not to be androgynous. We're to be what God made us. According to Genesis 1, these two sexes are part of God's good design. The sexes, though equally mankind, are different. By God's design, these distinctions between the two sexes, whatever they be, are undeniably good because they originate from the mind of God. They're an enduring part of his creation. And not just in the pristine pre-fall world. Binary sexuality, male and female, though marred by the fall in Genesis 3, remain intact. Uh, And You see this in Christ's teaching in Matthew 19. He says, uh, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That clearly is a post-fall positive affirmation of binary sexuality. But let's take it even further. There's uh, every reason to agree with the church father, Jerome, who said, If the woman shall not rise again as woman, nor the man as a man, there will be no resurrection of the body, for the body is made up of sex and members. So when it says sex and members, it's talking about stuff, physical stuff. To have a body is to be male or female, And he says if anyone's going to be resurrected, they're going to be resurrected as what they were, right? So the doctrine of the resurrection re-vindicates the goodness of the body and therefore sexuality. The resurrection doesn't change the substance of our bodies, but rather the qualities. So all the substance stays the same, but it has different qualities. For example, uh, apparently there's the ability to move through uh, walls, it would seem like. Uh, the main thing is that Jesus, when he's resurrected, is resurrected as a man, right? Many of the old doctrinal confessions go out of the way to emphasize that Christ's resurrected body, and this is the phrase they use, was the self-same body, but in a glorified state. This is the clear teaching of, of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus in the incarnation had a real human male body, and he currently has and always will have the same male body and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. So, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. We will be resurrected in a like manner. So, one reason you gotta talk about sexuality, some this is not on my notes. These are always either the best or worst parts. Um, but, uh, but <clears throat> like, why you have to talk about it is that it's not about growing beards and deadlifts and, and all that sort of stuff. Like, there are real cardinal doctrines. Up for grabs here, right? That like this matters to the core of your Christology, to to everything. You get this stuff wrong, you will plummet in, into the dark side of heresy. You really will. I'm not saying that you can you can you can tinker at the edges, man, but if, it's easy to fall into to rejecting uh, the importance of a physical resurrection, as many people do. We'll all be resurrected just like Jesus. That's what it says in First Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So your new body will be a glorified body. Unlike your old body, it doesn't perish. It isn't weak. It's perfect. Everything is perfect about it. However, it very much remains a human body, which means maleness and femal- femaleness will remain part of our individual destiny forever. I actually, so I don't know if what, is, is, the, uh, is Easter a big Sunday here? Like in this, everyone, the people that don't come to church, they do come to Easter and stuff. Well, that's the way it is in the States. So I decided one Easter that I was going to preach a whole sermon on transgenderism, but not let them know <laughs> to the very end. Uh, what I did is I preached through 1 Corinthians 15, but the point, the way I un- undermined and attacked transgenderism is the very fact that you will be male or female forever in the resurrection, whatever you were, uh, prior to death, is what you be, will be in your sex. And if you don't, if you reject that, you are taking an attack on the humanity of Christ, the enduring humanity of Christ, which is, uh, is a key doctrine in every single Protestant confession. All of them, every single one, right? And so I use that as a way to show how transgenderism is a demonic attack on the on the humanity of Christ and ultimately on the cross, because for Jesus for the cross to work, Jesus has to be hundred percent man and hundred percent God. If you separate those two things, you are you're just going in uh, towards uh, ship. You're going to shipwreck your soul. Here's the main point, though. In other words, binary sexuality existed pre-fall, post-fall, and will continue with the restoration of all things. Males are males forever. Females are females forever. Binary sexuality is forever. We won't be androgynous spirits in the world to come. Right? There's something, there's what's called the intermediate state. It's a very strange theological reality. There will be a time where we are uh, separate from our body, but the fullness of time is when we are rejoined with our body. So the eschatological importance is on man being rejoined with the full body. And so we'll never just be these spirits floating around playing harps. That's cartoons. That's not biblical doctrine. Man will uh, forever be a body-spirit composite. So biblical anthropology, anthropology is a fancy way of saying the doctrine of man, always keeps body and spirit together, and in doing so undermines two prevalent anthropological errors. The first one is man as a body-trapped spirit. This is where our human nature is divorced from our biological nature. I'd argue this is an assumption that runs deep in modern Christianity and it's contributed to the current sexual chaos uh, being experienced across all denominations and in in all cultures. Uh, This is a modern version of the Greeks, so think Gnostics. Uh, It basically sees matter, that's physicality, stuff, as intrinsically evil or somehow lesser than spirit. The second um, error, in that first one, that's evangelicalism, right? That is just evangelicalism... To, architecture doesn't matter, body doesn't matter, aesthetics don't matter. You can, you can go too far in all that, but that devaluing of the physical, you will not find that in Scripture anywhere. Scripture is always emphasizing place. It's always emphasizing beauty and strength. All those things come up over and over again in Scripture, and the idea that the body is something bad isn't in Scripture. Now, this fallen body is a tattered tent, but the days coming, well, we'll put on a mansion, right? A perfect body. So that's, and that sneaks in. Even John Calvin, who is the guy that I looked up, look up to probably more than anybody theologically, but he was really sickly. He had a lot of stomach problems. very And it, he, this sneaks into some of his writings where he um, refers to his body as a prison house. And I would have a problem with that language. But with Calvin... You just have to remember this is someone suffering physically, and when your body is warring against you, you can see why you feel that way. But it can sneak in real easy. Now, the second error is man as a biological machine. This is where our human nature is reduced to our biological nature, to our appetites and impulses. Basically, man is just a machine programmed by evolution to have certain desires. It only follows, then, that there's nothing wrong with embracing our natural inclinations. This error doesn't deny the body but the spirit, all man is, is a body. It's not corrupted. Freedom in this sort of system is surrendering to your nature. Therefore, if it feels good, if it serves your desire, then do it. This is the modern version, really, of the Sadducees. This is also really what you see mostly in the kind of manosphere world and men's groups. That you'll listen to these guys talk about neurology all the time. You know, they're, they're obsessed with dopamine. Dopamine is the way you explain everything right now. But what you need to know is that neurological science is, is a very new field. And a lot of those things we're just starting to kind of understand. And building a theology on dopamine or building a theology around neurology is dangerous. There's no doubt that that science will change radically in the next you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Um, even understanding how dopamine works in your brain is, is not easy. Um, but it's it's kind of it rewards you. It makes you feel good when you do certain things. But it can it can do other things as well. So you'll hear people always uh, these non Christians will use evolution as a uh, as a basis for how, what a man should be, right? But I had gerbils as a kid, and gerbils eat their babies, right? And so I'm not going to build from natural world, right? So if gerbils can eat their babies, why well, can't we? Right. There's like, if we're just evolved animals, if that's all we are, and then I've never known of a monogamous lion. I don't think they exist, do they? And so you're, you're going to have to, you, this is uh, Hume's guillotine or the naturalistic fallacy where you're determining an ought from it is, is. Right? Just because something is a way doesn't mean a moral uh, ought is coming out of that. And you'll hear these guys say this. So anytime someone starts citing evolutionary science or neurology too much, you should just, red flags should go up. And then, I'm not saying they, they don't have something worthwhile, to, uh, worthwhile points. Because I think when we look at video games, video games are designed, modern video games, are designed to hack brain chemistry. There's no way around it. They want to get you addicted to the notifications. You're like that dog that slobbers when what, whoever he was would hit the bell you know, and um, so I think there's stuff there, but don't be careful because these things are at odds right now. So there's the Gnostic tendency and there's this sort of evolutionary tendency. One error denies the goodness of the body and defines redemption as the soul's freedom from the body, like we want to escape the physical world. The other error uh, denies the reality of the soul and sees no need for the body's redemption at all. Both are wrong, Both are an attack on biblical anthropology. Both must be rejected because both rob us of our hope and uh, hope in the God of glory. The testimony of Scripture shows uh, these doctrines to be false. We're not mere souls. We aren't a mere body. You are a soul and a body or a spirit and a body. In other words, to be human is to be both spirit and body. Physicality is an essential part of humanity. Biological sex will not be eliminated in the bodily resurrection because it is precisely a resurrection of the body. So the body is good. Sexuality is good. Femaleness is good. Maleness is good. These are the controversial things that I say that somehow got me over here to Australia, right? Um, it's it really saying those things. That's how bad of a time we live in. These are, these are basic facts. If, if God, it is God who made you male or female, Therefore, you should embrace your sex as a gift from God. God assigned it to you. Your biological sex is a central part of God's revealed will for your life. If you're male, live like a man. If you're female, live like a woman. It, 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 so we have different hormonal makeups. If, if we all like die and they dig us up, you just look at that pelvis— that's a woman. You look at that guy's, that pelvis, that's a man. Because the woman's pelvis is shaped different to have babies. You, you study things like uh, uh, ACL tears, right? Women have more knee injuries than men. Do you know Why? Well, it's because their bodies have to—they uh, have to expand when having babies. Poor women, right? There's like whoop, 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 uh, back and forth, and uh, they have to expand, so they're more flexible. And estrogen does that to them. So on a hard pivot, when you put your foot down, if you're more flexible, and you're—you're gonna—you're gonna keep going, and it's gonna lead to tears. And so that's just a difference. We know that's like go look it up. Go, go Google knee injuries. Uh, in females, in soccer or football, or whatever, go, go look it up. You'll see there's just real differences from us. It changes how we, we do everything. The way we communicate's different, right? Male-female communication overlaps a ton, but there's a different way that we come at things. But uh, but a woman will never. Women make terrible fathers. They're the worst fathers in the world, and men make terrible mothers, right? We're different. We're wired different. And that's a big part of who we are, and you can't escape it. To to escape it, what are people doing? They have to be mutilated, and they have to have tons of drugs shut into them. And we still know, like, who's what. Like, you know, when I see some of these people say, do you think I'm a woman? Like, Like, no, man. Like, you are not, like, not at all. Like, I'm not, I still love you. I want you to know Jesus. But after all that stuff you just did, you're still a dude. And uh, very clearly, and so you, you know, even with all modern science, all these drugs, you can't stop it. That's how powerful God's design and creation is. So why fight it? Why hate yourself? You understand that people are people that are mutilating themselves, or they hate themselves. They hate what they are, right? And they shouldn't. They're, they're, that's how God made them. It's a good thing. And so we live in societies that are helping people hate themselves. And then they're saying that's love. That's insane. That's absolute madness. So this is simple stuff. It's basic. It's fundamental uh, to live any other way is to rebel against the nature God God assigned you in a sure path to misery. It just brings misery into people's life. You ever read, um, I, I, I didn't know there'd be little kids here, so I'm like kind of like walking around here. Have you ever had the pain of reading uh, post-op reflections on people that had sex changes. It's some of the hardest stuff I've ever read in my entire life. Right? It is misery. Don't believe the TV. It's lies, lies, lies. Everyone knew that just a couple decades ago. So this doctrine that our sexuality is good, that women ought to be feminine and men ought to be masculine, as basic as it is, it's under attack. Now there has been a war on masculinity raging In Western society, it's not a new one, but its intensity keeps ramping up. Misandry, that's the hatred of men or masculinity, is at a fever pitch right now. And when you bring this up with those that talk about it, they'll equivocate and say, no, no, we're only against toxic masculinity. Masculinity itself is fine. Really? Well, what do you mean by toxic masculinity? One way, if you're ever in a debate or having a conversation, so you don't talk past people, ask them to define their terms. Mormons believe in grace. Protestants believe in grace. But Mormons mean something totally different by grace than we do. What do you mean by toxic masculinity? Because I can think of versions of masculinity that I think are evil and wicked and bad that I wouldn't be. Maybe that's what they're talking about. Well, a few years ago, the American Psychological Association, the APA, it released its first set of official guidelines for working with boys and men. So these are the guidelines that will be used by psychologists, therapists, counselors, and influence government policies in America, uh, and in particular public schools. And here's what the uh, New York Times reported on these guidelines. Uh, they say... The guidelines, 10 and all, posit that males who are socialized to conform to traditional masculine, masculinity ide- ideology are often negatively affected in terms of mental and physical health. They acknowledge that ideas about masculinity vary acro- across culture, age groups, but they point to common themes like anti-femininity. Uh, so just to be clear... They're not against women. They're against being feminine, okay? Uh, achievement, excuse of the appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. So wait a second. Toxic masculinity sure sounds a whole lot like normal masculinity to me. It's negative that boys don't want to be a woman. It's negative that boys want to achieve and be strong. It's negative that boys are driven to rule and subdue the earth and therefore are driven towards adventure, risk, and even assorted type of, a sort of type of violence. That's crazy. This is nonsense. And yet it will be mainstream through public schools and government agencies. And this is exactly what Christina Hoff Summers, she's one of these weird like feminists that are trying to defend men right now. There's a, but she, she's written a couple good books, and she's worth uh, checking out. She uh, wrote a book called The War on Boys. So it's about 25 years old now. And in it she said, We are turning against boys and forgetting a simple truth that the energy, competitiveness, and corporal daring of normal, decent males is responsible for much of what is right in the world, right? Amen. The world needs men, but the feministic spirit of the age labels masculinity as a social ill. It sees traditional masculinity as toxic, as something to be treated, not encouraged. There is intense governmental and cultural pressure The feminized men, as they label masculine tendencies as destructive, they essentially see men as defective women. Now, side note, this is a men's event. They do see women as defective men as well. Like, uh, I'll tell you, here's feminism hates femininity because it teaches women to have value that they have to be able to compete with men, right? That's what they stress, and that's why they're obsessed with wage and vocation. Right, like that's a big deal to them, and that goes all the way back to feminine mystique and all those second-wave feminists um, that wrote on that stuff. But both, both uh, feminists and anyone that's anti-men, they basically want the other, the sexes to flop, right? And so they they see men as defective women. Wrong. Maleness is part of God's good design. But this misandry. Is in the air we breathe, it's, it's the water we swim, uh, and we've absorbed it in one way or another. Even in the church, there's negativity towards men and male tendencies. Just think of Mother's Day sermons versus Father's Day sermons. Preachers tend to gush over mothers in their congregation. They praise them for their sacrifice and hard work, and I think that's good, right? Faithful mothers should be praised. In our churches in America, I think it's a Midwestern thing, but like every mom gets like a rose on the way out. Right, like the son say, hey, here you go, mom, and you know, uh, I think she'd be happier if they just cleaned their room. Um, but anyhow, uh, that's that's what those Mother's Day sermons are like. But Father's Day sermons are often used as an opportunity to critique men, to highlight the failures of fathers. More often than not, men are illustrated as useless oafs. Men are made out to be like Homer Simpson or Peter Griffin or whoever. I think this demonstrates that we've absorbed some of the culture's antagonistic attitudes towards men, and fathers in particular. <laughs> Side note, I pre- plan my, all my sermons about six to nine months out at a time, because I'm bivocational, so I have to take two days off work and plan everything really far and trust that. I had this sermon that uh, was on uh, two women in Philippians that were uh, at odds with each other, and I decided I was going to call the, the sermon Christian Women's Sin. And uh, in it I accidentally put it on Mother's Day. And everyone thought I did it on purpose. <laughs> so, it was funny. So at East River, we, we balance out the ratio. We get everybody. We're equal opportunity uh, offenders. Anyway, um, besides this, the church focuses heavily on topics and adopts a tone that, while welcoming to women, repulse men. You can see this in the Jesus is My Boyfriend worship music, right? Um, we we're singing on the way up here, you know. Hold me close to you. Never let me go. Well, actually, I don't really want to be held by another man for very long. Um, uh, it's not because, like, uh, fragile masculinity or whatever. I just, that's not what we do. Like, if I'm about to die in war or something, like, hold me. I'll tell you. Tell my wife I love her. Don't remarry. No, so, <laughs> so, that's a joke. Uh, but... Anyhow, um, you listen to that, and you don't feel very comfortable. It feels a little bit like singing a romantic ballad to Christ. It feels a little gay, right? And you can see this in the overly emotive soft preaching that refuses to take risk. Uh, I always point out that the road to hell is paved with adverbs. So adverbs are L-Y words. So if, I ask, if you ask your uh, child, is your homework done? Yes, it's mostly done, right? Is your room clean? It's almost clean. It's mostly clean. Now, we all know that means your homework's not done and the room's not clean. And so when you listen to a lot of modern preachers, they, they wonder and suggest, and then they, they add all these adverbs as a way to um, never take a hard stand, you know, and to give everyone a back door out so it doesn't offend anybody, uh, so it doesn't take any risk. And, and so a lot of pastors have been trained to keep the peace, but they mistake quiet for peace. And I've been at tables. Have you ever been in a fight with your spouse and everything's quiet, right? But there is no peace. And there are some churches that are very quiet because they don't step on the wrong person's cho- toes, but there is no peace. And I'll tell you right now, the way to peace generally is the pathways conflict, and it creates some noise. You have to be willing to step on some toes, and uh, sometimes, when you, uh, young pastors when they take over church, uh, sometimes the right thing is to kill some sacred cow. Like come in and if the choir's terrible, just get rid of the choir. <laughs> just let them know there's a new sheriff in town. That's you kind of do things like that. But there's no one will take those risks. No, uh, there's no sermons that are speaking plainly to the issues of the day and stating the facts of Scripture in unmistakable language. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't feel like you need to make things more offensive than they are, right? Just say them. Just say them. Make sure people understand them. Don't soften it. Don't, don't, don't apologize. I'll never apologize for God's word. Um, like when, when you come to First Timothy 2 and it says women can't have authority over men, here's what it means. Women can't have authority over men. That's what it means. I'm not sorry. It's good. It's awesome. I love it. It should be your, uh, your you know, memory verse for the next month if you have a problem with it. It's what it says. Why are we apologizing for God? Who do we think we are? He's God, and we're man. It's amazing that he loves us, yet he does. So we need preachers that will take some risk. It doesn't, not shock jocks, you hear me? That's not what I'm saying. Men that the word, preach the word faithfully, it will take care of it, okay? If you just go through it, I get to parts of scripture and say, oh man, I got to preach this. And then, you know, I steal my spine and get up there and teach what, what it says. But I'm not, uh, I'm not out there just looking to upset people. Uh, that's, that's foolish. That's like a little kid trying to get attention. Uh, but we need to say it, and we don't have men like that right now because they don't want to ruffle feathers, um, especially if they belong to hens. You don't know what hens are, do you? Do you know what hens are here? Chickens. How did you not know what a hen was, Luca? They don't have that in... Yeah, I thought that was a thing. No, okay, anyway. Um, Or McKay, whoever it was, sorry. Um, You messed me up in this thing, man. All right, anyhow, uh, it should be no wonder that the evangelical church is on average 60 to 70% female, right? Now, people say that's not that big a difference. Yes, it is, right? The world is basically 50% male and 50% woman, roughly, okay? That's a huge difference. And it's losing men every day. This guy, John K. White, he wrote, A devastating criticism of Christianity is many men see it as not only irrelevant, but as effeminate. So Christianity is overwhelmingly associated with women, as it is in in its modern version, uh, probably because it favors the feminine. A man must therefore choose between being masculine and Christian. He cannot be both. If he is invited to a church, he must check his... uh, is, uh, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Sorry, little guys. I don't know how it works here. But check something at the door. Um, Or so it seems. The culture is against men, and men rarely find refuge from the onslaught in emasculated or feminized churches today. Another uh, lens to look at this dilemma, uh, this war of manhood, is through the lens of shame. When I step on a nail, I feel pain. That pain is my body saying, stop that. When I sin, I feel shame. That shame is my conscience saying, stop that. Shame, like pain, is uncomfortable, but a necessary teacher. It exhorts us to turn from doing something destructive. Uh, When we do something sinful, it's good that we feel shame. However, there's a flip side. We shouldn't feel pain when we use our body as designed, right? When you get in your 40s, like, you hurt for no explicable reason. Like, Like, when you're walking in a normal way, that shouldn't cause pain, right? That means something's breaking down, something's not right. Um, So when you move it in normal range, it shouldn't hurt. Uh, It should feel just fine. Likewise, you shouldn't feel ashamed of things that are good and holy. As a pastor, I've worked with female sex abuse victims like quite a bit. And I've noticed a tendency in them to be ashamed of their femininity. It manifests itself in many different ways in their posture, clothing, eye contact, and so forth. It's not something that I ever wanted to be well experienced in but you know f- was that the right churches at the wrong time or right churches at the right time depending on how you see it but in a nutshell they mute their sexuality right they hide their curves they hide their eyes uh, because they associate it with pain and shame they feel that their feminine features are what caused them to be victimized by a predator right so being pretty being a girl drew a predator to them and now they want to hide because they, they don't want to be hurt anymore uh, and that's terrible. Women should not be ashamed of their femininity. No one should do that. They should be able to live safe and protected. Neither should men be made to feel ashamed of their masculinity, right? It's good to be a man. And yet, our culture mocks, ridicules, and shames men for being masculine. This is exactly the opposite of Scripture. In Scripture, it's the effeminate man who is shamed. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6. 9 through 11. This is from the New American Standard Bible. DSV gets it wrong. Um, or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God. So the text gives us a partial list of lifestyle sins which will keep you out of heaven. And I say lifestyle because it's clearly not talking about isolated acts of these sins, but a life which is dominated and controlled by these sins. These are defiling and damning sins of which we must repent. As Paul says, such were some of you. If you're a Christian, you know something of the life-changing power of the Spirit of God. Some of you were fornicators, drunkards, and so forth, but God washed you, right? Amen. But Look again at this list and note that being effeminate is included as a soul-damning sin. Now, depending on your translation, effeminate may not be included in your list. Some modern translations conflate effeminate and homosexual. Sadly, you won't find it in the ESV or the modern NIV. And I, I have not looked at the new version of the New American Standard Bible, uh, but they're all trying to mess this up, but it's right there in the Greek. It is there. They're two very different words, malakoi and arsenikoite, and they don't mean the same thing. This is uh, why the distinction is maintained in the Wyclef, Tyndale, Geneva, Luther's translation of the Bible, found in the KJV, and the New American Standard Bible, uh, 1994, I think. Um, Arsinecoite <clears throat> is rightly translated as men who have sex with men, whereas homosexuals. It re- refers to men who lie with other men. It has the sex act in mind. Malakoi, on the other hand, refers to a soft man or a man who plays the woman, hence the effeminate man. The translators justify conflating the two by saying that uh, arsinekoite refers to the active partner and Malakoi to the passive partner in the sex act. But this is it's wrong. You can be effeminate without being a homosexual. Malachi is a much broader category. It refers to any way in which a man takes on feminine attributes. So it's good to be a man, but it's not good to be an effeminate man. Effemacies, like all other sins in 1 Corinthians 6, is shameful. It's a sin to be repented of. But we must make it clear that there's nothing wrong with femininity. Femininity is beautiful and essential. The world needs femininity, just like it needs masculinity. But here's the thing. Men have a feminine side as much as a dog has a feline side. I always tell folks that my wife is my feminine side. I don't have one, right? Now, it's normal and natural for a cat to meow, but it's strange and unnatural when you hear a dog meow. So it is with femininity. It's beautiful in women but repulsive in men, right? So, um, so the reason... So women have different uh, pelvises, and uh, when they're towards the end of their cycle... Uh, the hormones soften the cartilage in their hips, and that makes them do that sway. Right? They sway their hips. So when you, one reason when you see an effeminate man swaying his hips, uh, why you go, Ugh, right? Like, you, like it grosses you out, especially if it kind of looks like a girl from behind and turns around. You're like, oh my gosh. Um, but the reason that disgusts you is because it's unnatural. His bones don't do that, right? That's an uh, uh, it, it's fake. Right? He's mimicking something. There is no like physiological reason for that to happen like there is in a woman. Uh, a woman's sway changes even through the month, uh, but but those guys, they it's repulsive, it's gross, it's unnatural. Uh, we, we have to We have to kind of stop acting like these things aren't gross, like get your yuck factor back, right it's, you know, when you see a like a girl throw her hair around, turn around, she's got a full beard on, man. Uh, it's okay. To, like, you know, be a little shocked. And it's not normal. It's, it's gross. Every time I bring this up, um, well, okay. So uh, saying effemacy uh, is sinful isn't a dig at femininity. It's a dig at a dog meowing. It's a dig at a man who God made acting like a woman. That's repulsive. That's sinful. That's shameful. And it's exactly what our culture is trying to normalize. And we have to resist doing so. Every time I bring this up, people want a list of what is and isn't effeminate? People love their lists, right? Like what? Like modesty. People are obsessed with modesty. Like they want a style guide and everything. Um, I don't have one for you. Just be a Christian. Be a, like read the Bible, listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction, and and dress in a way that is appropriate to the situation. So, but I'll be the first to admit that it's hard to come up with a a, a definitive list on what's effeminate. Uh, But let me give you two examples, one from nature and one from Scripture. First, as I just uh, gave you, why women sway their hips. Um, And uh, I skipped to that, I see. Uh, But second, here's another one from Nahum 3.13, where God's calling out Nineveh, the city of blood. This is what God says. God says, behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fires devoured your bars. So the NLT is even blunter. Your troops will be weak and helpless as women. The gates of your land will be open wide to the enemy and set on fire and burn. Okay? So I got back from running a 10K with a friend and his daughter, and she had grown up in the church. He was, we were in the same Presbyterian church. And she asked, um, we were talking about, uh, she had kind of become a feminist, and so this was her chance. I had been her pastor for a time, and this was her chance to kind of get digs at me. And she was asking, like, what's, a, what's one major difference between men and women? And I said, well, just hit me as hard as you can. Like, as hard as you can, right on my face. And then let me hit you as hard as I can. And you'll see the difference. Now, now you don't believe that's a big difference. Put a woman, uh, the best woman boxer you can get, with the best male boxer you can get. Or, people didn't understand, when John McEnroe was uh, talking about Serena Williams... And said that she was probably at 800th, uh, like with men, that he was actually complimenting her, right? He wasn't trying to insult her, but people thought like she had a chance at the high level. She does not. WNBA women stand no chance against their peers in, in NBA. They're just different bodies. Like they're stronger, they're faster, it's built different. Now, is there some big woman out there that can beat, beat up some smaller guy? No doubt, right? Uh, no doubt, but it's not normal. It's called a cross type. It's not, it's not the standard. Um, there are huge differences. Women also tend to be a little more emotionally aware. That's very good when you're trying to take care of kids and nurture and uh, build an environment, an atmosphere. Guys can be a little dopey sometimes about what's going on. But being dopey emotionally is helpful when people are blowing up in front of you into little pieces in the, in, in the battlefield, right? So guys, they tend to, n- that's why guys have such terrible PTSD. Like it's delayed trauma. They come back and while, while they're out there, they do what needs to be done a lot of times, right? They fight the fight, whatever, uh, because a lot they can kind of bifurcate what's happening, but they have to deal with their emotions down the line. Uh, so women don't make good soldiers. They're weaker. They're more emotionally present. That's a bad attribute for being a soldier. And God says so. What's God's misogynist? Does that offend you? Right? Does it offend you that the God of the Bible says that? Is, it, is the God of the Old Testament the same God of the New Testament? You have to make these decisions, right? You have to decide, well, I let the word of God reign and shape my categories. Or Disney. What's, what's it going to be? What's, is it, does the Holy Spirit inspire every word of God? Or just the ones you like? Those are the decisions. Now, look, those things that are weaknesses in women there are strengths elsewhere, right? Like, man needs a woman. There's my wife. It's funny, the controversies I get in. One controversy I got in, being out here in Australia, is Tom Ford shared me saying that pastors should listen to women when the women say there's a creepy vibe on a guy in the church. And they're like, you shouldn't listen to women. Women are more emotional. Well, dummy, that's helpful. Right, she's like aware, like this guy's putting off kind of weird vibes. Well, you shouldn't like decide definitively based on that. I never said that, man. I I said that like I'm that emotional intuition is very helpful, and it should at least be considered, right? In my marriage, I consider what my wife has to say. She helps me. She she catches on to things, and uh, that I don't always catch on to. And so we should. These things matter, and we should actually care about these distinctions. Uh, no man wants to be known as a coward, okay? Right? We expect the man to run forward at, at danger. But if a woman runs away from danger, no, no person would ever shame them unless they left their child, right? If they leave their child, we would. That's the one area where women are expected to be bold, to protect their children, because everyone knows motherhood their, their motherhood's part of their nature. So women are very strong. I've been there at the, at the birth of all my children. Um, it's not fun when you see a person sticking out of another person. But I've been there, um, and they're very strong. But feminine strength is tied to feminine purposes. Uh, women are made to nurture and cultivate safely within the borders. Men are made to expand and protect those borders. Now, think about men's obsession with sports. Sports are essentially ritualized warfare. It doesn't matter if it's tennis, a tennis court, a soccer field, or in between the end zones, uh, or now pickleball. Is pickleball gotten got over here yet? It's like, it's a madness in the States right now. Uh, these are environments where men prove their mettle. They demonstrate that they have skill, toughness, and determination. Moreover, they learn that chain of command uh, and how to work alongside a band of brothers. Sports are about becoming a warrior in a society where war is fought by a small paid military uh, and now increasingly machines. Men need to be tough, disciplined, and focused. I mean, I think coaches are one of the last places where men can be men. I mean, my coaches screamed at me like crazy, and, uh, and they rarely complimented you, right? So with, with some coaches, if they didn't scream at you, it meant you did a good job. But I remember my wrestling coach, Donnie Stonefield, was one of my wrestling coaches. And uh, I was junior varsity my freshman year. And I went out against this, I think the state champion that year, or runner up. And um, I had that guy, I was flipping that guy around, throwing him all around the first period, because I, I wasn't a trained wrestler. They're the worst people to wrestle. It's my first year. They flop around like fish, and they're crazy. Uh, but eventually, you stick him, And he stuck me, he pinned me. But it took him like two full periods. And then I walked off, and I was this crush that I had lost. This was my first match ever. I got, like, a state champion. And and Donnie Stonefield said, Foster, you can wrestle for me. Anytime you can wrestle for me. And it meant the world to me. It meant the world um, because I wanted to be tough. I wanted to be focused. I wanted to win. I wanted the praise of a man I respected. It's like one of the few places where that still is allowed, where you can push people hard. So we desired, I don't care if you do sports, neither does God, but a man that is a sissy who won't stand and fight is an effeminate man and needs to repent. He needs to be strong. Strength comes in all sorts of forms, right? And these days, having a moral backbone is more important than how much you can bench, right? Now, lifting weights makes you more confident, no doubt about that, but a lot of people lifted weights and folded like a cheap cardboard when the government put pressure on them, didn't they? I think Christian men are waking up in mass. I think they don't want to be effeminate. They want to be masculine for the glory of God and good for others. And they're looking for guides. And sadly, they're finding few in the church. Instead, they're turning to online influencers. I hate the word influencer. Someone referred to me as influencer the other day, and I just wanted to quit all of life. But, um, you know, I want to have influence. I don't want to be an influencer. I'm a pastor is what I am. Uh, Anyhow, they listen to men like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, and I call these men Absaloms. Uh, in 2 Samuel 15, we read, Absalom, the son of king, the king of David, stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He did this by pretending to be their advocate. He invested time in them. He took an interest in them. He sided with them. He defended them. And Absalom gave them a voice, but he did it for selfish reasons. Now, I'm not saying that Rogan or Peterson don't sincerely want to help people. I think both of them do in their own way. Uh, but the counsel they give is a mixed bag, to say the least, and is often at odds with Scripture. And there are a lot of weirdos and frauds online giving men terrible advice. And they're stealing the hearts of our men. The hearts of Christian men are being stolen by pagans because pastors won't stand up. Normal men won't stand up, right? You, if you're a normal guy that has your marriage in order and you're, your job in order and your finances in order there are people that are just desperate for any of the practical wisdom you can give them you change entire people's lives if you just let them in a little bit we need a generation of Nehemiahs right i love Nehemiah he's my favorite man in all of scripture besides christ what i love about Nehemiah is that he's a high level guy finds out that his people are in trouble and he, he prays and asks the Lord to give him favor with his king. And then he comes back to Jerusalem with a mission. I'm going to rebuild the wall, set the gates. He does it, right? He rebuilds the wall and he goes back home. I love that. A Driven mission man. Not in it for glory, not in it for anything, but, but for his people, for his nation, for the people he loves and cares about. Totally different from Absalom. Absalom wanted to be seen as a judge and a king in the gates of Jerusalem and in doing so stole the hearts of Israel. But he wanted their hearts focused on him. Nehemiah, on the other hand, desired to rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem, but listened to where he focused the heart of the people. One of my favorite verses, Nehemiah 4.14. Uh, When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles The officials and the rest of the people do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So we need bold and godly men calling out um, effeminate, or calling men out of effeminate pursuits and back to the fight, back to building, rebuilding our society for the glory of God. The church is for women, but it is also for men. If you don't have to lay your masculinity. Aside, to follow God the Father. Matter of fact, the church needs nothing more than it needs masculine men driven and possessed by a holy ambition. Listen, and I'll close with this. So First Timothy 3.1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So the word overseer simply refers to elders and pastors. If you desire to be an elder, it must be an ambitious desire. Now, I think Christians have been trained to be uh, suspicious of both ambition and desire. But listen, Paul says, if any man aspires to the office, the word we translate as aspire means to stretch towards or be strongly pulled towards. It means to have strong longing desires to attain some goal. That's ambition. The Westminster's uh, definition for ambition is a strong desire to do or to achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. The 1828 version of Webster says, ambition includes a desire of excellence or superiority. Look around at our church, brothers. Is our problem that the church is full of financially stable, physically fit, happily married men? Is that our problem? Is that the issue? Are we overwhelmed with ambitious men? No, it isn't. If, any, uh, if anything, our problem is that uh, we're overwhelmed with mediocre men men who are satisfied with online domination, whether, whether through video games or arguments on social media, right? If you argue too much on social media, you're a loser, okay? Don't. A little bit, right? You can do a little bit. But if you're like, right, sit in there, have you ever written something really long and it, it, del- it gets deleted? <laughs> and you're like, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. I should just go back to doing normal life. Men who find satisfaction in self-pleasure and self-pleasure in pornography. Unhealthy men, unmotivated individuals who abuse alcohol and get out of breath by walking up a flight of stairs. That's the problem. We need men who aspire to greatness. Men who strive for excellence. Ambitious men. Men who are godly, yes, but also ambitious. What we need is a revival of men unashamed of the objective goodness of their God-given masculine design. I pray that God will raise up men like that here in Australia, Newcastle, and all the other other towns. Um, And I pray that that you're one of them. Uh, So in the words of Paul, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Let me pray for you, okay? Father God, I thank you for salvation that we have in your Son. Thank you that you've opened our eyes to see the truth, that your Holy Spirit leads us in repentance, God. Where we have been passive, where we have been um, apathetic, Lord, uh, where we have not pursued holiness for your glory, God, lead us in repentance, God. Strengthen us to call sin, sin, And then to turn our affections and desires towards what is good, God, what is righteous. God, we pray for Australia that you would bless her with lots of strong churches that preach the gospel, that are unashamed of scripture, that are willing to stand strong on every little word, God. We pray that you would protect her from overreacting, um, but a real correction would come, God. Bless this church with godly men, with godly households, men who love their wives, men who love their children that are our protectors and providers and presiders that look over uh, all that needs to be done, God. We thank you for this. In your son's name, amen. Amen, thank you.